Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Fashion, love it or loathe it, there is no question that the fashion industry is a global business worth billions of pounds. But as we discussed in our last episode, the climate impact of the industry is placing a far bigger cost on the planet than it is on our pockets. You're listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and we're developing our conversation on fashion and fossil fuels. And I'm delighted to welcome back Amy Nguyen, who's a strategist, researcher and writer and the founder of Sustainable and Social. Hi, Amy. Good to see you again. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for having me back to discuss this topic. It's a pleasure. And I'm also pleased to invite, uh, welcome back George Harding-Rolls, who was with us last time, and he's the co-author of the Fossil Fashion Reports at the Changing Markets Foundation, and he's worked across campaigns on fashion, fisheries and plastic. Hi, George. Thanks for coming back to Planet Pod. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me back. It's a great pleasure to welcome our third guest to the podcast today. Betty Osei-Bonzu is an environmentalist and project coordinator for Green Africa Youth Organisation. And she champions the Sustainable Community Project and its replication in other areas of Ghana. So all the way from Ghana, Betty, hello and thank you so much for coming and a huge welcome to Planet Pod. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. This week we're talking about fashion, but particularly in terms of of end of life and waste and what happens to some of those garments that we buy. And and when when we spoke last week, we talked about the fossil fuel impact of the fashion industry and our reliance on fossil fuel. But now we're talking about what happens. So we bought that item, that fabulous must have new frock or jumper or pair of jeans. And we've fallen out of love with it and we put it in what we think is the right place, the recycling or, or a charity shop. But that's actually nothing like as good as we thought it was. So, George, w- what is the fashion fallout? How bad is it? And what amount of waste are we talking about? Yeah, so I think as with so many things, there is no such thing as a way. You throw away your plastic, go somewhere, you throw away your uh, textiles, they go somewhere and someone has to deal with it. Um, what we're seeing now is a a burgeoning crisis of, of textile waste, of fashion waste, um, which we haven't seen before for a variety of reasons. And I think for this, it's important to look at the trends. Um, while we not might not be able to pin the waste crisis on one particular factor, uh, we do know that production is massively outstripping both GDP growth and population growth, um, which suggests that people are just consuming more and more. Uh, we know that for a fact that people are consuming 60% more clothing than 15 years ago. Um, and also something quite interesting um, about the price of clothing, and this is something that we um, touched upon before but didn't really talk about, and it's something you, we circle around again and again in, in the sort of fashion space of saying, oh, well, you know, if we want sustainable fashion, then it's going to have to cost more. Um, to an extent, that is true, but actually when we look at consumer price indices uh, from the 1990s to now, we actually see that the cost of clothing has plateaued, whereas the cost of all items has continued to increase. So. Clothing is actually costing us, um, I can't remember the exact figure, but I think it's gone from costing 1.5 the cost of um, all goods to less than half. Um, so we're, we're buying more clothes and they are costing us less, which just means that there is a vast amount of clothing going to waste. Um, in terms of what that looks like, I think it's roughly one garbage truck worth of textile waste per second of every day, in day in, day, in, day out, and that's all going somewhere and somebody's got to be done with it. The reality is that 99% of all textile waste is uh, landfilled, dumped or incinerated. Um, and the burden of that is often falling on lower middle income countries 
um, as, as Betty will attest to, that's a huge problem in Ghana. Um, but it's also contributing to the climate crisis in, in terms of incineration and emissions and um, a vast, I mean, we can dig into all the different waste crises that this touches, not least microfibers and all that sort of thing, but um, safe to say it is a, a huge issue um, of a similar scale to the plastics crisis. Okay, so just so we get our heads around this, one garbage truck, so you're talking about what we would see, one of those things that normally comes along and picks up our bins, so something the size of a kind of largish lorry, every second yep. of textile waste, largely made up of clothing, because I guess textiles could be, you know, sheets and commercial textiles, so largely made up of clothing per second, going to landfill or just going into the system? So, go, no, that's going, that's at the the waste end of things. So being landfilled, being incinerated or, or being dumped. And the reason that dumping is different from landfills because um, you know, landfill is something of a formalized system and you can kind of contain any toxic chemicals largely that are coming off it. It's just, it's just contained. Whereas actually the reality is that a lot of these waste textiles that are exported get sent to places like Indonesia, places like um, East Africa or West Africa, um, and then they're just dumped. They're dumped in rivers. They enter into the sea. They're they're in people's backyards, and and that is a serious problem. Yeah, it's it's horrific. So so when I you know decide that my much loved pair of jeans that are now no longer wearable because they're more whole than jean, I take them along. They're not going to be resaleable. I know that. So I take them along to one of those clothes recycling banks, and I put it in there. I'm thinking this is going to be recycled in a way that's going to be sustainable. And those banks, oddly enough, are always green, aren't they? So they make you think that it's going somewhere into a, a green recycling scheme. But what you're saying to, to me and to listeners is that's absolutely not what's happening to it. It's just going into a waste stream, which will be dumped or burnt somewhere. I mean, yeah. it's I mean, if it, you look, you have to go back to the, what's the incentive for them to recycle it, really. Um, nobody's going to buy that holy pair of, of jeans. Nobody, no waste sorter is going to say, like, this has value when you can buy a brand new pair from Primark for like 15 quid. So the economics of it just don't stack up at this moment. And we can talk about some of the ways that we can address that later. I mean, to be honest, if you've got to the stage where you've got a pair of jeans which are full of holes, you've probably been wearing them for a really long time anyway, so you've already done something right. Um, <laughs> the problem comes when people are wearing them for one season and then something else is trendy and they decide to throw it out and they think they're doing a good thing by sending it to charity. It's not to say that charity is, is a bad thing to do with your clothes. Um, it's just that a much larger amount of clothing um, than we presume is not being resold. It's actually being... Um, got rid of, dumped, incinerated or, or landfilled. And and Betty, I guess a lot of it is ending up with you, isn't it? It's ending up in Ghana and it's not being used as a, for resale. It's ending up on those, those closed mountains. Yes, you said that well. Ghana, or should I say Africa, has become a waste dumping ground. And when I was a kid, you would always have that hierarchical system where your elder sibling will wear a particular dress down to you and you pass it down to the next sibling. And that was a way of making sure that um, the cloth keeps going in the system or waste is being recycled in the system. But that system now is failing. You have this 21st century individual saying that, oh, no, I don't want to use all my stars one. And all those myths about this is bad, the transfer of disease from one skin to another. Locally, can you imagine that particular myth going around? Just imagine now having the global north sending down to the global south. And the reason they do that is because, one, low income and reduced cost. They reduce the cost of importing these particular goods from wherever it's coming from into wherever it's going to. 
And this is what is actually destroying our system. The local industry are not being are not able to produce their own garments and sell. You have the population running for the cheaper clothing. You just have to make do with what you have within your system. I am wearing local made dress. I am advocating for that. The, the use of our local and indigenous clothing. And this will be lacking in the system. And when I was talking in the changing garments in COP26, I mentioned that according to a research, 150 million tons of waste clothing, secondhand clothing, comes weekly into Ghana. 150 million, 150 million tons. tons of secondhand clothing come into Ghana's market. And then to shock you that 40% of those clothings, like they are waste, you can't do anything about it. 40? Within, yes. You get the individuals, there's a place we call Kantamanto in Ghana. Kantamanto. Mm-hmm. So when they bring in the bill, you see all the traders rushing for the bill, buying it. When you bring your bill, you can use only 50% of it. So, Betty, what you're saying is that the, the, the secondhand clothes market, which has been an established market in Ghana for many, many years, those those clothes come in and they come in in a bale and they are traded in the market. But but the situation is very different now from, from the way it used to be. What happens when, when a trader opens up those bales? What's inside them? What is, what is the situation with the clothes themselves? Okay. Currently, the situation of secondhand clothing is more of a nuisance than of economic importance because when you open this particular bills, you find close to 50% of the items you actually want being waste. You have most of the clothing spoiled, torn, some areas darkened, some areas black than what you actually want. So you find these traders disposing these clothing just beside them for the contracted waste companies to come for them. And when these contracted waste companies come for them, they send them to landfills. If they're not able to dispose them properly, we have the informal waste um, contractors that also come by. When they come for these clothing, they just leave them at illegal dumping areas. And these are washed away by water into our coastal bodies and into other drainage systems. Choking drainage systems, causing flooding, and the problem just compounds and compounds. This problem is not just because of the global north sending its waste. But because of the system we have, it's failed in terms of employment, in terms of poverty eradication. There is the want. That is the reason why there is the need. You can you would always have individuals purchasing this thing because they really need it. There's a demand for clothing. So, so why is it that there hasn't been? I mean, you you yourself said you're wearing absolutely stunning, you know, dress that's that's produced locally. Why hasn't clothing been produced locally, and why is it not available for people? Is it is it just a lot more expensive than than the secondhand clothing that's coming in in those bales from from the global north? In terms of pr- producing clothing within Africa, or should I scale it down to Ghana? It's quite expensive to do so because of the machineries and the technical expertise. So clothing are quite cost. When you are buying this fabric, it's more expensive because you have to buy it and sew it. So it's very expensive than actually buying most of the secondhand clothing you are all putting on. So just have to mind that, George, the next time you are talking on the call, maybe somebody is wearing your dress down here in Ghana. 
So that's the kind of <laughs> the kind of system that the kind of system we have here. So yeah. so yes, that that's just what is happening. Um, yeah, there's so, also like so, an interesting parallel um, that if you think about like any country, if you think about clothes that are British made and you buy something, you pay a premium because it's British made because it's harder to make it in the UK because they have to be paying like proper wages to people in this country. They have to be sourcing locally, like possibly locally grown natural fibers or whatever. The fashion industry as a whole has spent the last couple of decades building a fast fashion machine that that. Uh, relies on low wages in Bangladesh that uses synthetic fibers that come from fossil fuels that ship it around a global transport network precisely so that it can bring prices as low as possible. And that means mm. that local industries have no chance of surviving. And obviously, countries like Ghana are facing the brunt of this with all this cheap secondhand clothing flooding the market. But in many ways, there are similar issues in terms of like, what does it mean to actually buy sustainably and locally? It's just much more expensive. Mm. Mm. And Amy, this isn't just happening in Ghana, is it? It's happening all over the place. No, this is happening all over the world. And there was a recent expose that happened in November of last year, which actually showed the tons and tons and mountains of clothes that were building up in Chile's Atacama Desert. And the independent here, I've got it, the stat is... 39,000 tons of discarded fast fashion and they found things like ski boots and like you know tacky Christmas jumpers and things like that so when we're talking about throwaway fashion we really need to think about these things as well and it's not just to say that it's coming merely from the UK or the US and they also said that it's finding itself over from China and things like that so it's a really intricate complex network of where all these things are coming from and to reiterate the point that George said about the global value chains if we look at your average Zara dress you can estimate that it will have traveled to at least six different countries before it will have made it to the country where you may actually buy it. So that's also something to consider as well. So it has a huge footprint just in terms of travel, let alone in terms of the fossil fuel content, if, it, if it's made of synthetic fabrics. Yeah. So why is this happening, Amy? What's going wrong? So we're all doing, you know, we're all doing what we think is the right thing. Why is it happening? Why is stuff ending up in the wrong place like this and in landfill? I know it's overconsumption, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? There's something, something is breaking down in the system. Well, I think part of it is this mindset, going back to what George said, is like there's no such thing as a way, but we've been almost programmed in a sense to think that when we give an item to a charity store or when we sell an item or when we put it in the clothing bank, when we, we've done a great thing, but we're not being really thinking about the long-term picture of things. So I've also got some stats here. Um, a gentleman called Andrew Books um, did an investigation into where our clothes go after we donate them to the charity shop and he actually estimated that 10 to 30 percent of what is given to UK charities actually ends up being sold over the counter so where is the rest going and um, that's quite frightening mm. and then and then he also gave um, some more data which found that 51 million kilograms of secondhand clothing is traded annually overseas from Britain alone so again that just goes back to what Betty was discussing earlier yeah. So it's really, really interesting. Really interesting and a huge problem. Betty, I'm really concerned because you've painted this picture of clothes piling up, just as Amy did in the desert, of clothes piling up and then getting into the water supply. They're not just causing blockages and drainage problems. I mean, as they break down all of the fossil fuel elements and the microfibers and the and the toxins in those fabrics are getting into your oceans and rivers and streams, aren't they? Yes, they are. 
with respect to the the clothings and the fibers breaking down, they are polluting our river bodies, our water bodies. And don't forget that we are a developing nation and you find individuals within local areas drinking directly from those water bodies. Apart from the fact that this particular um, degradation of plastic is polluting our river bodies and killing biodiversity, flora, fauna, is as well affecting the health of um, indigenous individuals living within local communities because those water bodies serve as a source of drinking, using for household chores and et cetera. Not to forget that those sources of water are also used for irrigation activities. So we are kind of creating a chain here. Now, fossil fuel is everywhere because it's used in making up every of our products and now it's entering into our food chain and it's affecting us. We are not seeing the impact now, but some years to come, you would really see the impact greatly. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm, Evershed Sutherland. This is a terrifying picture that Betty's painting for us, Amy and George, isn't it? Absolutely terrifying. What can be done? I mean, we'll talk, I guess, about what we do as individual consumers, but what can be done at a legislation or policy level or a manufacturing or commercial level to try and stem this flow? I mean, I know we've got to buy less, but but what else could be done? I mean, I think just something to say on the microfiber um, issue as well, um, just in case any of our listeners think, well, well, that's a shame for countries where clothes are getting dumped, but it's fine for me. It's not fine for, for me or you. It's their microfibers are everywhere. Something that's not talked about enough in general in the sustainability movement is toxic environments. It's not particularly sexy mm-hmm. uh, topic of conversation, um, but the level of uh, toxics that we're surrounded with from the goods that we use. I mean, I hope people have seen the, the film Dark Waters um, about the scandal with DuPont, Dad DuPont. Um, but, you know, really, that's just the start of it. We are stewing in a lot of chemicals that are causing all sorts of problems, endocrine disruptors, etc. Um, not least in our clothing, um, in the coatings that are on, on clothing, but also in things like microfibers, which shed off our clothes when we wear them. So they're there in the air that we breathe. Um, they get into the water systems, as Betty was saying, all the drinking the water that we're drinking get into ecosystems, cause huge disruption down at the kind of microscopic um, plankton level, which has ramifications up the food chain. Um, so they're getting into our soil, getting into our food, into our bloodstreams. Um, we know that they have been uh, shown to cross the blood-brain barrier in marine species. Um, there was also a meta-analysis done the other day on microfiber, microplastics, um, that said that they are they contribute to um, damaging cell health at a really, really microscopic level. Um, and that the more irregular the microplastic is shaped, the more damage it does. And the most irregular shaped microplastics are synthetic microfibers. Um, a lot of fashion brands frustratingly like to dodge the question and say that all fibers shed, but that natural fibers are just as bad as synthetic microfibers. That is absolute BS. Uh, there's a huge amount of a huge body of research to suggest that that's not the trajectory that the research is, is heading us in. It may not be 100% conclusive, but in sustainability, you have something called the precautionary principle that if something looks like it's going to be causing harm, you have to take a precautionary approach and, and mitigate for that. So. What we're, one of the things to answer your earlier question, like what can brands do, for example, reduce your use of synthetic fibers, 
whilst we know that this is a huge problem to, I mean, to children with developing lungs, and there was something that came out with like COVID patients recovering and trying to recover their lung tissue, that microfibers causing problems there. Um, you know, one, when we know that, that those are the issues that we're facing, then why not take a precautionary approach and, and reduce your use of synthetic fibers? Um, call for more research for sure, but, but certainly take that kind of stance. Um, I mean, I think that is, that is one of the basis of our campaign is like, while there are all these issues related with fossil fashion, um, you have to take a stand and you have to uh, freeze your reliance or reduce it where you can. Mm. And just and just on that, then what brands can do at a commercial level, which leads us into probably a nice segue to talk about false solutions within the fashion industry as well. And when George is talking about the use of synthetic fibres, that also means the use of recycled synthetic fibres and downcycling. George's TED talk. My, 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 <laughs> up my pet topic. <laughs> yeah. So, so Amy, what do you mean when you talk about downcycling? George, do you want to take this? No, Amy, don't worry. I talk about this nonstop. So. <laughs> no, please, no, please. You explain it far better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> the myth of recycled bottles in clothes. Um, oh, this is my recycled bottles into my leggings story that I was desperate to tell that I wasn't allowed to. You so want to lead, go lead with that, lead with that. So, so yeah, so I thought I was doing the right thing because I bought a new pair of, of leggings and it and it said they'd been made from recycled bottles. And I thought, yippee, but you've you've told me that, that actually I'm completely, it's it's fallacious, it's greenwashing. I'm being led up the garden path. I'm so sorry. Very slowly because I'm a very slow runner. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I've disappointed a lot of friends and family by um, sort of looking askance at their uh, recycled recycled clothing. So when you turn plastic bottles into polyester fiber, which is what they're used for, and 99% of recycled polyester comes from plastic bottles, um, the industry will call it recycling, but we actually call it downcycling. Um, because when you turn them into fiber, at the end of their life, they cannot be turned back into fiber again. Um, so it's a one-way ticket to landfill incineration or, or being dumped in nature. Um, we know that 99% of all textile that is produced um, at the end of its life is, is landfill dumped or incinerated. Um, there's fairly good data on that. And the reason, the reason for that is because it can't be turned back into fibre again. There's no viable fibre to fibre recycling technology for synthetic, well, for polyester in particular being the biggest synthetic. There is some technology for nylon, uh, but I think that's a very small amount. And it, itself it only represents quite a small amount of synthetic um, fibre production. So um, that's one front why it's why it's a bad thing. It can't be recycled further, so it's downcycling. Um, the second is more complicated. Um, it actually we considered that it it poaches recyclable material from the beverage container industry. So when you get your bottle of water, hopefully you've got a reusable one, but if you've had to use a single-use one um, and you put it in a recycling bin, or if you're in a country lucky enough to have a deposit return system, you put it back in the machine there. Um, it will, there is a huge amount of competition and a huge amount of demand from that beverage container producing company, the bottled water company, um, to take that and turn it back into a percentage of a new recycled bottle. There are um, legally binding targets for them to do that in the EU, um, both to get the recycling rate up and to include recycled content in their bottles. Actually, what you've got is the fashion industry is, is there being the biggest um, consumer of recycled PET material. So where it could have a life as another, you know, five to 10 plastic bottles, which obviates the, the need to get more virgin plastic in to, to make those bottles, it's now being turned into your recycled leggings, Amanda. And then um, hopefully you wear them for a really long time, but when you're done with them, there's nothing that you could do with them in terms of recycling. 
Oh, I'm heart, I'm heartbroken. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> the third element is um is the, on the kind of greenwashing and on the um on the comparison of the tiny amount of recycled content that brands are actually using, recycled mm. uh, PET that they're actually using, compared to the huge amount of virgin synthetics that come directly from fossil fuels that they're using. They like to talk a lot about this recycled content amount. Um, we know that that's not viable either, but even taking taking that out of the question. Um, it's it's just a bit of a smokescreen and they like to greenwash the hell out of it. Um, it's often something that you read again and again and again on billboards, on product information. This is made from recycled plastic bottles and we're meant to think, whoopee, that's great. We're saving the mm. planet. And actually we are not. And it's a full solution and um, it needs to mm. end. And just to add to that, like you can walk around. I always like to do a little like shop snoop and you can walk around H&M and T-shirts and blouses and dresses will have 20% recycled polyester, 35% recycled polyester with these like green tags. There'll be like no context on the back, but it's just almost like these little indicators like boom, this is green, boom, this is green, boom, this is green. And we know for a fact that it's not. Um, and going back to what we've spoken about previously, even if they've used 50% recycled polyester and they've interpreted that as sustainable, sometimes it'll be mixed with like four or five other fibres. How are we meant to responsibly recycle that item? Mm. And so, it's a really important part of the investigation into greenwashing in the fashion industry as well as like, are you accounting for the full life cycle of the product? No. So they're not doing that. They're not accounting for the life cycle. We've got a problem with production. We've also got a problem with the shops themselves, haven't we? Because so often now you buy an item and you exchange it and those items, you buy it, you decide you don't want it, you take it back. You know, it's perfectly usable and wearable. It's not going back onto the shop floor. It's going into into the waste stream, isn't it? And there are, you know, occasions where you, if you buy something online, they often don't even ask for the item back anymore. So you're left with, you know, they give you a refund, you're left with another item that you don't want. So so it's an absolute minefield for consumers, this, isn't it? What, Amy, what can people do? What, how can they take sensible, responsible action to try and mitigate this and reduce the amount of um, clothing that's going into the to the waste system and is ending up outside Betty's back door effectively? What can we do? I think as citizens, the first thing we can do is question why we're buying so many items in the first place. I mean, it's a bit of a deep question that you have to ask yourself when you want to buy a new dress. But seriously, why are you buying it? Like, is it to impress someone else? Is it to fill a void in your life that is otherwise left unfulfilled? Um, is it an expression of your creativity? So I think looking at those things and then, you know, when we're talking about how to manage our wardrobe sustainably, there are lots and lots of different ways to manage this. We also spoke about how no one is perfect. Um I've definitely got lots of wardrobe items that are from high street shops and I and I would happily say that and but I would say is when I do buy an item like that I always ask myself Livia Firth from Eco Age Roy says the 30 wears challenge would I wear this at least 30 times um that's a really important question to ask and also how timeless how timeless is that piece like am I going to be able to wear that in two decades time um I have lots of items that I still have from like that I wear when when I went to school um because I haven't grown um and then it's like avoiding trend-led pieces so during our synthetics anonymous research we saw some awful items you know Louis Vuitton had this awful like ninja turtle plastic gilet now I'm sorry even if you're into street style 
that was just you know that's not a sustainable item and then if we're thinking about other things as well I think it's looking at upcycling like sustainable laundry habits is another big one as well are you doing your laundry with like guppy bags which can catch the microfibers or there's also bit like corables that's not like you know they catch the microfibers and then where do they go they go to a landfill and they get get to water so are you suggesting we don't wash our clothes george you're not suggesting that are you you're I just we could wash our clothes less no one's in the room with me they can't tell if i smell or not but like <laughs> we've all got uh, had covid now so none of us can smell anything so it's all you know that might be a benefit um, you know that is that is part of a recommendation is like i think it is um levi's that yeah. suggests that you wash your jeans far less than you think that they would need to be yeah. Um, no, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that people. Well, okay. What about legislation? What about regulation? Is there a role here for things like the Competition Markets Authority? Is there a role for for government legislation? We want to shop sustainably. We're hearing what Amy says. We're going to do our best to buy fewer items, to wear them for longer, to swap them with mates, to use those resale sites where people get you know a second lot of love out of them. What is the role of legislators and policymakers around this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's got a massive role to to play in kind of changing the rules of the system and, and how we all operate and, and dispose of fashion or reuse fashion. Um, the CMA is an interesting one because I think the upshot of what they're doing on green claims and greenwashing will be that actually fashion brands make far fewer green claims. So it's kind of largely about protecting the consumer from false advertising rather than like changing things at systemic level. But it should it should be seen as part of a part of a movement for regulators sort of a pincer movement on the fashion industry and part of a suite of legislative things that can help us get on the right track. Um, one of the most important ones that we're looking at very closely is um, EPR, so Extended Producer Responsibility, um, which is otherwise known as the polluter pays principle. Um, so how do we kind of turn it back, uh, turn the mirror back on the fashion brands and say to them, okay, there's this waste crisis, what are you going to do about it? Um, and how do you have a financial responsibility to ensure that at the end of life, those that holy pair of jeans that you were talking about at the beginning, um, to ensure that it's recycled. So that might be in like in installing a kind of take back scheme. Um, it might be investing in recycling, viable recycling. Um, or it might be, I mean, what we're particularly keen on any EPR proposal um, in, in any legislation, but particularly in the EU, is that it makes um, allowances for um, countries in the global south that have to deal with that waste. So how does a portion, because it's a fee based structure, so essentially they'll pay a per unit fee, per clothing fee, the fashion brand, in order to put the clothing on the market, you have to pay for its end of life management. And mm. we think that some of that fee should be going to places like Cantamanto Market, so that they're not um, dealing with, you know, they're not paid for the service that they're providing to the global north, amongst other things across the entire value chain, but that would be an important first step. Yeah, because Betty, you wouldn't, I guess, suggest that the secondhand clothing market into Ghana stops immediately tomorrow, would you? I mean, you want it to be better managed, better regulated, better quality items. You don't want it to stop altogether, I assume. Okay, so these are two ball games here. One, if I just want to take my listeners' attention to two things. The first thing is that waste management is not only a financial burden, but now more of a social burden. Mm -hmm. And secondly... If Ghana as a country or developing countries invest in their clothing system, they can get more economical gains from it because cloth now is more like a necessity. It's very important to everybody. So one is the government should invest in its local clothing and there should be the complete stop of this clothing in general from the, the, the global north. Deal with your waste and deal with your clothing. It's as simple as that. 
because Africa is not a dumping ground. And that is what we should be able to stand for. And this is very, very important. So this is what I'm going to say um, respect to respect to this. Yeah, that's a really good message. Thank you. We've heard that loud and clear. And I guess for consumers here, what we should be doing is buying less, thinking about what we buy, making sure that what we buy has a sustainable element. Don't be lured like I have been with the recycled bottle leggings. Just don't. Maybe just don't run. Then you wouldn't need the leggings in the first place. But but I think we do have to say. You know, I'm going to put a caveat on that but before we close, and that, that a lot of those charity shops do rely on those donations. They rely on clothing donations and the income they get from selling clothes on. So perhaps what we need to do is to think before we dump those things on the charity shops and only give them the really good quality items that they can genuinely resell. So they're not having to send 80 or 90% of that into the waste stream, which is probably what's happening. I guess finding finding different financial mechanisms to make sure that they're, they're- paid for what they do in waste sorting. So if you had a good EPR scheme, it might have allowances for charity shops or or that essentially would be the brands paying charity shops as the drop-off points for their clothing and for the sorting that they do. So it's, I mean, I recognize that point. We can't kind of undercut um, an important revenue stream for them, but there are different ways that we can do it and there are different ways we can envisage. And I think another thing to say on it um, is the role of brands in like perpetuating the trend-based element, which is a mm. huge part of the, the waste issue. I think where brands have been leading on like repairability and like, you know, making it cool to wear clothes that kind of have a bit of a patch in them or like that you've had for ages and you're like, this was my, my mom's or something like that, making that cool and turning their marketing clout instead of looking at greenwashing, turning it towards promoting mm. these cool trends or environmentally cool trends. And there are actually, um, there are some apps now, there's this app called Sojo, which helps you like, so, like you can send it and it'll go and be sewed and whatever. They're actually working with Gani and things like that now. So there's a lot of like collaboration in the industry on things like that. And I actually just wanted to add for any of the readers that are really interested in this topic, there's this fantastic academic paper called uh, Earth Over Growth Logic, which would be um, really good for people interested in this topic. And then also um, Ajababa, who works in this space, has a book called Consumed, The Need for Collective Change, Colonialism, Climate Change and Consumerism. So it perfectly encapsulates what we speak about today. Absolutely. And we were delighted that we actually had Ajababa on a, on a pod about a year ago. So I know we'll come back to this. This is a huge topic. And, and we've I know we've only scratched the surface. But but again, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you both, Amy and George. Thank you so much. And Betty, we struggled sometimes with the sound, but gosh, was it worth it. We were so grateful to you for joining us. So a huge thank you to you, Betty. And, and you know, we've got your message loud and clear. Um, and I, I hope that we'll help to change our habits here. So a thank you to my guests for being with us. Okay, thank you so much. Um, and, and as always, a thank you to, to Jim, my executive producer, and to Beth, the producer of Planet Pod. Thank you for listening. Why not subscribe? Then you'll never miss an episode. We'll just drop into your inbox every time we go out um, and visit the website where you can catch up on past episodes, including that one with Ajababa. But for now, it's, it's goodbye from me and a huge thank you for listening. See you soon. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.